very much. It is November the 14th, 2020. And we're very, very glad to be back together again. And today we are going to crack open chapter five, how it works. And we're going to go into a more detailed kind of pace, a more pedantic kind of pace than most of you have been going through with your sponsors or on your own. And we're going to look at some things as we go through the chapter. We're not going to get through everything today, obviously. But what we're going to look at is we're going to blow the doors off as best we can in the coming weeks some of the misconceptions about the two most under, most misunderstood steps, three and four. In chapter one and the doctor's, chapter, the doctor's opinion, chapter one, two, and three, we are in step one. In chapter four, we are in step two. And in the chapter that we're going to study today, we are going to take a look at steps three and four. We're not going to get as far maybe as some, but that's going to be okay. Now, the first four chapters and the doctor's opinion, the doctor's opinion was not written by Bill. It was written by Dr. Silkworth, and that's why it was moved. You see, a lot of people have this idea that the first 164 pages of the big book have never been altered or changed. And that's not true. In the first printing of the first edition of the big book, uh, the doctor's opinion was chapter number one. It was in the main body of the book. But when they came out with the second printing, they moved, or the second edition, they moved it, sorry, they moved it to the Roman numeral section. The reason being the belief, the heavy belief was the book should be by alcoholics for alcoholics. And we're going to touch on that theme this morning, that the book should be by alcoholics and for alcoholics. So kind of keep that in your mind. The other thing that we're going to see changed in the first 164 pages once it was printed is in the first printing of the first edition, you see the words, having had a spiritual experience. Bill was writing from his own experience, a sudden and profound connection to his higher power. And on the 12th step, it now says, and it has since the second printing of the first edition, it now says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 step, uh, 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 having had a spiritual awakening. So these are th some things that were changed. Now, the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters were in the book, as they say, they were in the can. And Bill was not writing from the office in Newark, New Jersey. He was home at 182 Clinton Street. They had not moved to Bedford Hills uh, Stepping Stones. That was years down the line. They were living at 182 Clinton Street. The book was written in 37 and 38. Some of it was written in early 39, and it was printed on April the 10th. 1939. This would have been now 1938. This would have been 38. And Bill was home at 182 Clinton Street. And he had his legal pad and he put his knees up to form kind of a desk in bed. And he knew that it was time, excuse me, to sort of codify the program of recovery that these alcoholics could follow. He never set out to write 12 steps. What he set out to do was to close up some of the loopholes that the alcoholics were slipping through in the six step program that they had adopted or adapted from the Oxford group movement. He never set out to write 12 steps. But what happened was nothing short of miraculous. He 
said that the pencil seemed to have a life of its own. And within about 20 minutes, he wrote chapter five. Now, we're going to get to some changes in just a minute here. But within a few minutes, 20 minutes, he wrote one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature that the world has ever seen inside the big book of AA, which is one of the greatest pieces of literature that the world has ever seen. And at many, many of your meetings, they read chapter five from how it works on page 58 through the ABCs on page 60. And how that started was an early member got a manuscript, a mimeographed manuscript. This was a guy in Los Angeles whose wife got it from somebody who got it from Bill. And this woman knew that this woman's husband was an alcoholic. His name was Morty Josephson. He was a Jewish guy in Los Angeles. And Morty was an alcoholic. And Morty uh, didn't really want to get sober. He did, but he didn't really want to. But what happened was his wife ran an ad in a local Los Angeles newspaper, and they met at the Cecil Hotel, which was a flea bag hotel in Los Angeles, California, with a mimeographed copy of the big book. And Morty Josephson and about 10 or 12 of these alcoholics met on the second floor of the Cecil Hotel. And the wives waited outside for this one meeting to cure their alcoholic husbands. And Morty and none of them had ever been to a meeting of AA. They'd never been to a meeting of the Oxford group. They didn't know what to do. So Morty opens up the book and reads, this is how it works. So he says, well, let's start there. So he starts reading and he gets to the end of the ABCs on page 60. And he says, that seems to be a good place to stop. Now, is it odd or is it God that to this day in millions of meetings, in many, many different programs, that is exactly how they open up the meetings today. But let's get back into this. Bill writes chapter five. It's about two o'clock in the morning and he is just as proud as a peacock. He looks and he sees that there are now 12 steps and he's pleased because 12 is a significant number. It's a there were 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is a very significant number in biblical terms. And I think there were 12 apostles, but correct me if I'm wrong, I, I don't know, but I think there were. But anyway, whether there were or not, 12 was significant so that he was very pleased. At about two o'clock in the morning, one of the guys who was, he was just, he had just been sober like uh, six weeks, comes over to 182 Clinton Street. See, people knew Bill was up all night and slept all day. Uh, this was the height of the depression. Bill wasn't working. And he comes up and Bill is just, he can't wait to show him. He says, look, look, look at the new 12 steps. And this guy, newly sober, takes a look at it and says, what the heck is going on here? Six has always been sufficient. Why do we need 12? And the fight was on. And they fought Bill tooth and nail on many of the things that he put in this chapter. And there were compromises that needed to be made. But after a while, he settled the boys down and often in the end of his life said, I became more of an umpire than I ever was an author. He said to them, look, you're fighting me tooth and nail. I'll step out. You guys finish the book and I'll step out. And they didn't want to do that. But they said, you're going to have to make some compromises here. And they sent mimeographed copies of the chapter as they had done with the other chapters to Akron. They sent some to Cleveland. They circulated some in the New York groups and always a clean copy stayed in Newark, New Jersey at Hank Parkhurst's office at 17 Walnut for Honor Dealers, which was a company that Hank had formed to sell auto
automobile polish. So there were many copies floating around and there were changes that needed to be made. In the original seventh step, he said, on humbly on your knees, ask God to remove your defects. And somebody said, stand them up because some religions don't pray on their knees. He said, stand them up and take that out. And he did. And the bottom line is, as the fights started to evolve, we have what we have today, which is chapter five. So let's crack it open. If you have a big book in front of you, you can open it to page 58, but we're not quite ready to start reading the text just yet. I wanna talk to you for just a minute about one of the heaviest influences on what we have today on the 12 steps. And one of the heaviest influences was a guy named Sam Shoemaker. And Sam Shoemaker was in charge of the cavalry mission. And he was the front man in New York for the Oxford Group movement. And Sam Shoemaker broke rank with Frank Buckman in England over this idea. Frank Buckman believed that the Oxford Groupers must adhere to strict Christian principles. And the Oxford group were people that were practicing first century Christianity. But Sam Shoemaker believed, and this is where Ebby originally got it from. He didn't get it from Burwell. He got it from Shoemaker. Burwell just refined this idea. And what is that idea? God as you understand God. Burwell was an atheist. And Ebby was a guy who didn't like to be told what to do. I guess all of us who are compulsive overeaters, we love to be told what to do and exactly how to do it. We're not rebellious at all, are we? But Bill Wilson said at the end of his life that the addict, the alcoholic, excuse me, the alcoholic is a um, immature, sensitive rebel. And we can relate to that, can't we? Immature, sensitive, rebel, and we have been tantruming with a knife and a fork for as long as we can remember against bristling and rebelling against a world that just didn't follow our script most of the time, aren't we? So Sam Shoemaker was a very heavy influence and Bill actually wanted Sam to write the steps. Bill wanted Sam to write the book. Sam wouldn't hear of it. He said, no, Bill, this book must be written by four alcoholics. You're doing a great job. You just continue with what you're doing. And so tight was this relationship between Bill, Lois, and Sam Shoemaker that at many conventions, early on, as, as right up to 1960 in San Diego, California, when Bill would address the convention, he would often bring Sam Shoemaker up there to address the alcoholics as well. So between Lois and Sam Shoemaker and Father Edward Dowling out of St. Louis, who was a Jesuit priest, you had non-alcoholics speaking at AA conventions. And I don't think that that practice exists today. I think if you go to an AA meeting, the, the speakers will be uh, alcoholic or they will be pre-identified as Al-Anons. So you have, you have sort of gotten away from that practice. I know that in an OA convention, you probably won't be hearing people from the pulpit, from the front uh, as non-alcoholics addressing the group. But Sam Shoemaker, there are many tapes of him. You can access them. Just Google it or go on silkworth.net or go on AA websites with podcasts and you can hear Sam Shoemaker addressing conventions and meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I'm giving you some of the history because I think for many it enhances it. But let's take a look at more nuts and bolts of how Sam Shoemaker affected, <clears throat> hold on one second. It's getting hot here in Arizona again. We had a couple of days relief and now we're gonna start going back up. In
door open, which was a dumb move. I should have turned the air conditioner on. But anyway, okay, fine. I'll make it. But the bottom line is, is that this is exactly how the influence of Shoemaker manifested itself in our steps. Sam Shoemaker was the author of a book called Twice Born Ministers. It's not conference approved. I'm just telling you what happened. This is not a conference approved book. And on page 92 of this book, there are four impediments to God that are described. What is an impediment? An impediment is something which slows or stops progress. It slows or stops progress. So an impediment is very dangerous. And Sam and Bill knew that unless these impediments, and some impediments could be speed bumps and some impediments could be dead end walls, depending upon you know, what, what action we take. These are the four impediments to God. The first, excuse me, the first impediment is a resentment that you will not let go of. And that became our step number four. The second impediment is a secret that you will not tell, which became our step five. Now, do I have to get on here in front of 96 people and say, my bank account number is one, two, three, four, five, six, and my passcode is, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, E. No, that's not what that means at all. What it means is I have to put down in my inventory, step five, what I did in step four, excuse me, my inventory is step four, and I have to be willing to share that inventory openly and honestly with God and another person. <clears throat> so people say, well, if I share it with God, why do I have to share it with another person? And the main answer that I give, and there are a multitude of answers, is this. It is imperative for us to see how vividly we are like other people because the ego has three jobs. Make me right, make me feel good right now and make me different from everybody else. Every compulsive overeater, alcoholic, Al-Anon gambler, drug addict, sex addict, love addict, you name it, tobacco addict, every addict who doesn't recover goes to God and God says, Shloimi, I sent you a program. What's the matter with you? And what do we all say? You don't understand, God. My case is different. My case is different. And how many millions of times have we told that to ourselves? And step five levels us out so that we see and hear from another person that we're really not that different at all. You name it, I've heard it all. In step fives that I've taken over the years, good Lord, I have heard it all. You are not going to shock me. You're just not going to shock me. Up to and including, you name it, I've heard it. So the reviewing the first two impediments, the first impediment is a resentment that you will not let go of, step four. A secret that you will not tell, step five. Now, a vicarious thrill that you will not stop lying, cheating, manipulating, uh, whatever, gossiping. That's a big one. Shoplifting. These are vicarious thrills that you will not stop became six and seven. You're either willing to have these defects removed or you're not. But if you continue the behavior if you continue this behavior of lying and shoplifting and stealing and cheating on your spouse or doing whatever it is you are doing, then you're really not willing to have it removed. And the fourth impediment is a restitution that you will not make. And what is a restitution? Restitution is more Oxford group language. To restitute means to restore in, in kind, to restore equally, to restitute. If I take a dollar from Maria 
and I owe her a dollar, I pay her a dollar. I don't pay her 50 cents or 75 cents. I pay her a dollar, a restitution that you will not make. And I get this call all the time. Somebody wants to give me their, their qualifications and the devil's always in the details. They want to give me all kinds of details about their sister-in-law and she's a whore and she's horrible and she's she's crazy and she's, she's this and she's a horrible person. And I don't want And the bottom line is I don't want to, I don't want to make amends to her. She's a witch. And they never like my answer. I say, go make amends to your sister-in-law now, or you won't recover. And I say, is this the hill you want to die on? So the four impediments, once again, to save us time during Q and a number one, a resentment that you will not let go of, step four. Number two, a secret you will not tell, step five. A vicarious thrill that you will not stop, steps six and seven. And a restitution, which we would call an amends that you will not make, steps eight and nine. So you see that the guts of the program the guts of the program are taken right from the Oxford group. So let's go now, let's go to page 58 and let's take a look at how it works on page 58 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Urban myth will tell you that Bill wanted to write, never have we seen a person fail who has followed our path. Let me assure you of something. If God wanted never in the book, it would have been in the book. The reason he wrote, rarely have we seen a person fail, is he knew that the alcoholic mind, I mean, he mean, meaning God, not Bill, God knowing the out, I see, I believe that God wrote the book. He just used Bill's hand and pencil. But if God wanted never in the book, the book would have read never. But Bill knew and God knew together that the alcoholic mind is the mind of a rebellious, immature, sensitive person. And there might be some cuckoo bird out in God knows where who's gonna say, oh yeah, I'm not gonna recover, screw you. And they didn't want that. So they said, rarely. <sighs> Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Now let's take a look at what this sentence is telling me completely give themselves to this simple program. You know, one of the, I love a vision for you. And I think most of you do too. I love a vision for you meetings in the mornings. And one of the questions that will always come up, it comes up at least once a month is somebody will call up and say, uh, how do I work this program? I have a full-time job. I have kids. I have a husband. I have a wife. I have this. I have that. I have a parakeet. What the heck? Goldfish. Well, this is either number one in my life or it's nothing. And we're going to see the language here at the very beginning of this chapter is very absolute language. The language here is such that we're going to see that we're either doing this or we're not, that there's no half measures. We're going to look at the language here and we're going to learn that this must be the priority. Here's a conversation I never had with anybody. Hi Harlan, my name is Mike and I've got three kids and a full-time job and I just don't think I'm gonna make it over to the convenience store today to get three candy bars that I've been hankering for all day. I think I'll let that go and do it tomorrow. I'm just too busy. I never had that conversation with anybody. And so I must put the same energy into my recovery that I put into the disease. Did you ever tell yourself that you were so busy that you couldn't make it to your binge foods? I doubt it. I doubt it. So when he says, 
cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, I have to remember that this is what my life depends on. More so than any other factor, my recovery will determine the direction that the rest of my living days will take. I'm either gonna go north into the recovery or I'm gonna go south into the disease. And so I must completely give myself to this simple program. And let's continue here. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And what is it that we need to be honest about? Yes, the simple answer is you need to be honest about everything. That's very true, you do. But here's what we're really talking about here, boys and girls. We are talking about your ability based on the first five chapters, the doctor's opinion, chapters one, two, three, and four, of you saying to yourself, based on this information, are you or are you not a compulsive overeater? For if you are, the idea that somehow someday you will be able to control and enjoy your eating is the great obsession of every compulsive overeater. And the idea that somehow someday you'll be able to eat like normal people has to be smashed. When I start thinking because of the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter and the mental twist who's looking for relief from the buildup of these emotions. When I start looking at French fries, when I, for me, I don't know what you've been through there. When I start looking at Chips Ahoy, when I start looking at Oreos or ice cream, and I think I can have that just this one time, now I'm not really being honest with myself. Because if I'm honest with myself, I've never had ice cream and smashed up Chips Ahoy cookies and smashed up Oreo cookies and been okay. That's never happened. Because I have a mind that's different from other people, but I have a body that's different from other people too. And I don't mean the outside of my body. I am not, when I say I have a body that's different from other people, I don't just mean that I had a size 90 waist. I mean very clearly that what I'm talking about in the body is that any description of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor, the doctor's opinion tells me, is incomplete. So I cannot eat Almond Joys. I cannot eat Kit Kats and think I'm just going to have one or two. I'm going to have, I'm going to be buying them by the 24 pack very soon. I used to be a smoker. I haven't smoked a cigarette now in 40 years. I haven't smoked a cigarette in 40 years and I don't wanna smoke a cigarette. But here's what I know. And what I know is this, if I smoked a cigarette today, today is Saturday, November the 14th, 2020. If I smoked a cigarette today, I would be buying them by the carton by Tuesday or Wednesday of next week and buying them by the case by next weekend. That's what I know about me. That's what I know about me. So I have to be honest with myself. And we're going to encounter this word honesty three times in the very first paragraph. So again, just to drive it home, what is it that we're looking you, at us to be honest about? We are looking at us to be honest about the fact that I am, despite what my brain might say, I am a compulsive overeater. Do you ever wonder why we say that every time we introduce ourselves? We don't say it for, for somebody else. We say it so that maybe, just maybe, just maybe, if I say, hi, I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. If we say it enough times, maybe, we'll hear it, maybe we'll believe it, maybe we'll be able to remember it. And that's why we say that every time we share and every time we're called upon to do anything. It isn't so other people will know that we are compulsive overeaters, 
It's so that I will know. It's a self-diagnosing disease and it is a disease of denial. It is a disease of amnesia and negative thinking breeds amnesia. When things get tough for me, I'm gonna forget. I cannot eat pizza. I cannot eat ice cream. I can't, I don't want to because I don't wanna pay the price. There are such unfortunates, they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. There are people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, but most of those people are in psych hospitals. So if you're wondering whether or not you are one of those people, by definition, you are not. Because a person who is constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves doesn't know it, does, is not aware of it. So if you're wondering, am I capable of being honest with myself? Then the answer is yes. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living, which demands rigorous honesty. So if you're not there yet, this sentence tells me that this is going to be a process. It says grasping and developing. It doesn't say mastering and arriving at. It says grasping and developing. And this is the words that we look at. It's like Bible study. It's like anything else. You take each word and, and I don't mean to turn this into a Bible class. Lord knows I woke up this morning and one of the first things I thought about after I obsessed about some other crazy things is thank God I don't have to talk about God today and religion and all that. I said, hallelujah, I don't have to talk about that today. But it doesn't say arrive at and, and master. It says develop. Developing means that it will evolve over time it will evolve over time. A manner of living which demands rigorous honesty, rigorous honesty about what? About the fact that I am a compulsive overeater. Now, I am not gonna remember that fact 15 seconds after this is over unless I remember this fact. I am not going to get this program absorbing spiritual information. I'm gonna get this program by transmitting spiritual information. And that means I'm gonna to have to get up to step 12 and start sponsoring and in transmitting that spiritual information, this is how I develop a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Every single time I take a sponsee call, I try to thank them for helping God keep me out of the food for one more day. Not only do they give me a couple of minutes of reprieve from thinking about myself, but I know that in transmitting spiritual information, it brings me closer to God and further away from potato chips. And that's a gift. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Honest about what? Honest about that you are, if you are, a compulsive overeater. And if you are a compulsive overeater, then only a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps is going to aid you. Nothing that is of this earth is going to help. And we have been told that several different times throughout the first few chapters that only a spiritual experience, or in my case, a spiritual awakening is going to help me. Let's continue. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. This is the influence of William James, and the book that we're referring to is called The Varieties of, Sp of Religious Experience, of Spiritual, of The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. I don't know. I'm not thinking. My brain isn't working today. I don't know why. 
Okay. William James in 1902 at the University of Edinburgh in, in Scotland. He was a psychologist and he attended a seminar there and uh, there were other psychologists and they were discussing stories of how people came to a relationship with God. And they noticed that there were three things that all these people had in common. Great catastrophe, great catastrophe, great need, and then effort to develop that relationship with God. Every one of those people has suffered great catastrophe. Nobody came in here to OA on a roll. None of you came here because things were going well for you. You came here because the tides of life turned against you and there was great catastrophe in your life. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, let's stop right there. If you've decided you want what we have, what is it that we seem to have here? Now, some of you may be answering in your head that what we have here are a bunch of people that are in recovery, and I hope that's true. But what we really have here are compulsive overeaters and there are many here that I know and many that I don't know. There are 99 of you on the line right now. I don't know all of you. I hope, hope to get to you before God closes my eyes. That would be my honor and privilege. But what we have are people who are compulsive overeaters afflicted with a mental and physical malady that compels us to eat ourselves to death, to eat ourselves into oblivion. We have a mind that is absolutely looking for an out to the buildup of these emotions. And what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect, what is the effect? The effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes when? It comes instantly by eating that food. And we have a body that mandates us through a physical allergy, an adverse abnormal reaction to the food, beverage, or substance to eat more of it than we had intended. So food is doing something for me that it does not seem to do for the normal eater. It gives me a sense of ease and comfort. Most human beings have the same relationship with food that I have with, that my car has with the gasoline in its tank. My car needs gasoline to get it around. Without gasoline, it won't run. I don't have a hybrid, it won't run. And so my car will let me put gasoline in the tank but what my car doesn't do in the middle of the night is sneak back to the gas station and try to squirt in a couple of more quarts or a couple of more gallons of ice cream because my car has a normal relationship with the gasoline, the fuel in its tank. I have gotten up in the middle of the night many, many, many times and I have gone out when the weather was inclement the hour was, was very late. My finances didn't really allow for this. My health didn't allow for this. And my waistline and my morbidly obese condition was shouting, don't do it. And I have gone out in the middle of the night in search of food that I knew very well was killing me, that I knew very well was emasculating me, that I knew very well was making me the butt of jokes that it was killing me because the shame and the guilt and the remorse and the horror of what I looked like, it emasculated me physically. It emasculated me mentally. It gave me reason to think I'd rather die than live. It gave me reason to say to God, take from me this life that you've given me. I don't want it anymore. Take me and I want to die because I knew I couldn't live with the food and I couldn't live without the food. So when it says here, if you've, get, if you've decided you want what we have, here's what we have. We have a group of people here who are these compulsive overeater types 
who are not eating compulsively right now, and note this, they are happy in their release. They are happy in their release. I'm very sad that the OA birthday in Los Angeles this year is gonna be on Zoom, but I'm sure God will provide. And I hope against hope that our Vision for You convention in Newark, New Jersey next year will be able to take place because I want everybody to hear that laughter. I want everybody to see that camaraderie. I want everybody to feel that togetherness. I want everybody to feel and see the tangible love that's in the air and to be one of the miracles. I have a friend, she's a lovely friend. I love her to death. She lives in Colorado and she is a big person for going to the ocean when we're at the OA birthday in Los Angeles. They take a ride out to the ocean and they watch the sun come up and they don't get back to the hotel until, oh, I don't know, eight, nine o'clock in the morning, something like that, something around that hour. And they come in and they say, what a miracle, what a miracle. We watched the sun come up over the Pacific Ocean and I'm all for miracles. But the greatest miracle in Los Angeles is not on the beach of the Pacific Ocean in Santa Monica. The greatest miracle is in the lobby of that hotel and in the, in the rooms, not the hotel rooms, but the, well, the hotel rooms too, but the convention rooms where we're having meetings and there are people there who are mortally afflicted with this disease, who are not eating compulsively, and they are thrilled, happy, joyous, and free in their release. That's the greatest miracle. You are one of those miracles if you fit into that category. And if you don't, you can become one. Just follow our path. Do what we need to do. We love each and every one of you. And there's many, many people on this line that will be happy to help you. If you're floundering, if you're lost, you don't have a sponsor. When I'm done yakking, there are people that will sponsor you. There are people that will be glad to help you, not for any other reason than the love in their heart and the necessity in their program to pass it on, that they know that they will not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. They will get this program by transmitting spiritual information and they will help you. You've come to the right place. So if you want what we have, what we have are people happy in their release and you're willing to go to any length to get it. Are you one of those people that gives me the list of what they're not going to do? Because when people come to me for sponsorship and right now I'm full, but who knows? Don't tell me what you're not going to do. You have to be willing to go to any length to get this. And if that means you have to make amends to that witch or that jerk or that whatever, or you have to give up certain behaviors, that's what you're going to have to do. That's what you're going to have to do. That is what is required of us. Then you are ready to take certain steps. But notice that they gave you the prerequisite if you've decided you want what we have and you're will, and not or, and you are willing to go to any length to get it. And they're going to refer back to that three times. Remember, it'll say in, in the next chapter, twice. It'll remember, it'll say, you agreed at the beginning that you would go to any length to gain mastery over alcohol. Remember, it'll say in another place, it was agreed at the beginning that you would go to any length to recover from alcoholism. And so we have to agree that you're willing to do whatever it takes. Now let's go to the next chapter. At some of these, we balk. What is a balk? A balk is a hesitation. It's actually a baseball term for a pitcher who hesitates. It's a hesitation. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. I'm going to tell you a secret, but I don't want you to tell anyone. If they aren't at this meeting, I don't want them to know you are to tell no one. 
guys, this is the easier, softer way. I have pissed in my pants hundreds of times. I have crapped in my pants hundreds of times. I was the butt of jokes. Children would laugh at me in supermarkets and public places. Adults would laugh at me in supermarkets and public places. People would come up to me and ask me how much I weighed. People would come up to me and slap my stomach and ask me when the baby was due. People have taken food off of my table in restaurants and given it to the busboy and have said, he's too fat, he doesn't need this. And I had to pretend that it didn't bother me. The girls did not want to dance with me. They did not want to date me. I was never invited to the makeout parties. I never played spin the bottle. I never played any of those games. The first time I ever held a girl's hand was in a meeting of OA and the girl was probably 40 years older than me. I never got to do any of that stuff. No girl ever passed me a note in school. The only time they would talk to me is they wanted to know if my friend liked them. Otherwise they did not speak to me and I didn't speak to them either. I went on my first date, I was 35 years of age. I have been ostracized. I have been a freak. I have been an unbelievable freak of nature. The pain that I have suffered physically and the pain that I have suffered mentally asks the question, why in the hell didn't I just take a knife and end it all? And the reason that I didn't was there was one ember in my heart that still wanted to live and God whispered on that ember and it burst into flames. And I'm alive today and glad of it. This is the easier, softer way. This is the greatest way of life imaginable. Stop fighting it. In Yiddish, the word for war is machloichas. The, the word for war is machloichas. The machloichas is on. The, the, I have a friend of mine in program. She lives in the eastern part of the country. And she says, the war is over. I love it. When she says that, my heart sings. The war is over. Don't fight the war anymore. Give God a chance. Give him a chance. Put the food down. Give yourself a chance. Most of all, most of all, remember this, that in my life, I have walked among many, but one of the groups that I have walked among are the people that walked out of the concentration camps of World War II with the numbers on the outside of their left arm and they could by their number know what camp they were in and what their number was. And they would grab my face like this and they would say, and they would kiss me and they would say, live until you die, live until you die. And I used to think that live until you die meant that I ate as many milk duds as I could get my hands on because for me, eating milk duds was living the viva loca, man. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Live until you die means you maximize your life and it starts today and it starts now. Put if you're struggling, put the food down. Give God a chance. This is the easier, softer way. There is no easier, softer way. Would you like a life that includes companionship? Would you like a life where you can love people and they can love you? I don't care how introverted you might be. I don't care what your particular situation is, but we are safe. 
I know that people scared me too. And there's a certain amount of social anxiety that I still have. There are residuals of it that I still have a certain amount of social anxiety, particularly when good looking women are in the environment. It scares me, it intimidates me. But this is a safe group of people. This is a safe group. It's like working with a net and it's a net that will grab you and love you. And we are just here to love on one another. And continuing, but we could not with all the earnestness. What is earnestness another name for? Honesty. So he's repeating the fourth time on this page, the concept of honesty. He just didn't want to keep using the same word. That's all. Earnestness is honesty at our command. We beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. What word is missing from that sentence? If you're going to be fearless and thorough, what word is missing? And the word is perfect. There's only one step you have to do perfectly. And that's step one. You're either eating or you're not. I know that there are some crossovers here from AA. I know that there are some of you who came over here from AA. There's one crossover here. And if she doesn't have her own television show by this time next year, somebody at CBS needs to be fired because this is, this, is, this is a character beyond characters. But it doesn't, but if you look at those AA people, what will they tell you? What will they tell you? You're either drinking or you're not. There is no middle ground. I'm either consuming alcohol or I am not. I'm either consuming sugar or I am not. I'm either consuming a food that is fried or I am not. Fried foods are not on my program. They're not on my food plan. They are verboten. No fried foods, no flour, no sugar, no dextrose, no artificial sweeteners. For me, I'm not talking about for you. I'm not your nutritionist or your God or your boss or your sponsor. Maybe, I don't know that maybe I, some of my guys are on here. I don't know. But the bottom line is, is that fearless and thorough, and there's no place here where it says perfect. Okay. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely. Hang on to nothing. Hang on to your social security number, your name, and that's about it. Everything else goes. Abandoned. Vacate. Let it go. What on God's name are you hanging on to? The result was nil until we let go absolutely. I came into this program, I wasn't yet 700 pounds. I was only about 500 pounds when I came in. I was 24 years old, maybe 600. I was 24 years old, I was probably about 600 pounds. And uh, it was February, 1979. And in my crazy mind, I was a liar. I am a liar by nature. I will lie with the best of them. Oh boy, can I lie? And there's nobody I lie to better than me. I might not get my bullshit past you because you're pretty smart and you can't bullshit a bullshitter, right? But I can lie to me with the best of them. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to be abstinent. But what happened was I says, I'm going to be abstinent, but one day a week, Sunday, I'm going to go to this place on Skokie Boulevard and they have a brunch buffet and I'm going to eat everything I want to on Sunday. And that became Sunday and Saturday. And that became Sunday, Saturday, and Friday. Well, you can see where we're going with this, right? There were three things that had to change in my life besides everything. There were three things that had to change in my life. My playgrounds, restaurants, my playmates, my binge buddies, and my play toys, food. My playgrounds, my playmates, and my play toys, all of it had to change. I could no longer recreate with food. I love recreating with food. I'm lonely. We're in the middle of a pandemic. 
I live alone. I go to sleep alone. I wake up alone. I hate that. I hate, I hate it with, with double poison. I cannot sit and recreate with Chips Ahoy. And Captain Crunch is a really good companion. Whether I douse him in milk or put him in ice cream, he is a great companion. Me and the captain have been on many, many voyages together. Me and the captain have been through everything together. Cannot happen today. I have to let go, not just of food. Don't stop there. I have to let go of, and this, the program is going to show me how. I have to let go of that judgmentalness, that selfishness, that self-seeking, that fear, that anger. Why? Because those are the things that have been driving me into the arms of Captain Crunch from the time I was four years old, two years old. What an infancy. Because, and the book is going to show me how specifically to do it. So if you're going to ask me during Q&A, how do I do that? I'm going to refer you back to the book because it explains it better than I can. This idea that I can still steal, I can still gossip, I can still cheat, I can still manipulate, I can still be selfish and scared and angry and all these other things and not eat is a joke because the guilt and the shame and the remorse that comes from the result of these behaviors, <laughs> she's killing me here. Uh, the result of these behaviors has been what has been driving me into the arms of Chips Ahoy and Oreos and God knows what else forever. So everything has to change. Doesn't all have to change today. But we have to be working at it. Didn't it just say we have to develop a manner of living? It doesn't say we immediately came to it. It says we develop a manner of living. And that's what the steps are going to do. Until we let go absolutely. Come on, guys, what are you hanging on to? What are you hanging on to? I know I sometimes hang on to crap myself. I know I do. And because I'm human and no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to have these things that I'm going to have to work on. That's why I have a sponsor. That's why I call my sponsor every day. I don't miss days. I missed one, one day he called me was my last knee replacement because it was real early in the morning. And then they replaced my knee. I got up to the hospital room. I was unusually tired. I didn't, I, I was sleeping. Then they come in, they get you up, they make you walk. And then I don't know what happened, but I fell back to sleep, which I don't normally do. And then he called me. But that's really the only day that I've missed. I've called from Jerusalem. I've called from wherever I am. I call because my ego needs to be leveled like that. Okay, let's, let's stop right there. I was going to do one more paragraph, but I'm not going to because I want to get to the Q&A.